The Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Welcome back to the Young and Healthy Podcast. I'm Kate Satter, your host for today. We are recording today Season 3, Episode 2, and our topic is First Aid. Joining me in the studio today are Dr. Cindy Chang and Dr. Brad Soboleski, both of whom are physicians in our emergency department, and they have been doing some work on First Aid and focusing on this. Uh, So we're super excited to have them in the studio today. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And so let's just get started with kind of a grounding. What is the general definition of first aid? Can you take this one for us, Brad? Yes, I love defining things. Yeah. So it's something that we all do at home, right? So if you burn yourself in the kitchen and you clean the wound and you apply a bandage, you are doing first aid, right? And so it's any behavior that helps somebody and provides additional care to somebody who is ill or injured. And the goal of that is to alleviate suffering, prevent further illness or injury, or to preserve life, you know, in a serious situation, like if you had to do CPR. Um, It can be started by anybody in any circumstance, including taking care of yourself. And, you know, first aid assessments should be medically sound, right? So there should be good evidence behind them. And they should be based on expert consensus and good evidence, you know, so recommended by groups like the American Heart Association. The main competencies for first aid, right, whether you are a medical provider working in an ED or you're a bystander, you got to recognize and prioritize the need for first aid, right? So does, does this person actually need help? You have to provide care using the right knowledge and behaviors, right? So do the things that will help this person in need and know your limitations and ask for help, right? Nobody can do this alone. And so, you know, in the field, that means calling 911, asking for emergency medical services. And so in your profession as a doctor who sees kids um, when they are in need of help in the emergency department, what kind of a difference can first aid that has been started at the right time, has been you know, medically indicated, has been um, done with some level of skill, um, how can it help that patient? I mean, without hyperbole, it can save lives and reduce suffering, right? And so if somebody acts quickly to somebody who is in peril or who is very sick, it can make all the difference between life and death. And I know that that um, sounds kind of like grand and obvious, but, you know, even little decisions of you know, going to, to help somebody or calling 911 right away make a big difference. And we see that in the emergency department, you know, people who act quickly, who ask for help, who initiate CPR, right? It makes a big difference in how these kids do both in the short and long term. And so you've mentioned CPR a couple of times. Um, what types of first aid are important to learn and what are the types of situations that somebody could use each of those skills? If I listed everything that is under the umbrella of first aid, you would be listening to my voice for way too long. And so, yes, it's important to know that first aid is everything from a tooth that gets knocked out 
to somebody who is unconscious and needs CPR, right? And so many of these you learn along the way in life. Others require very specialized training. Um, I think when most people think of, you know, first aid or bystander rescue, they think of somebody in cardiac arrest. Obviously, that's the most dramatic example. And fortunately, it's, it's very rare, but it's incredibly serious. And I think especially here in Cincinnati, it's fresh in the hearts and minds of a lot of the folks in the tri-state area, you know, following the inspiring life-saving events, both on the field at Paycor Stadium um, and at UC Medical Center when uh, the Buffalo Bills' DeMar Hamlin collapsed on the field, early cardiopulmonary resuscitation, which included high-quality chest compressions and CPR, as well as the deployment and use of an AED, an automated external defibrillator, saved his life. And yes, I mean, admittedly, the people on the field that day and the medical professionals working in the hospital, they are trained to do this. They practice it. They do it every day. It is their job to get it right and to be ready. But that doesn't mean that anybody listening to this episode can't learn how to save a life by doing CPR, right? And so if a person is unconscious in front of you and not breathing, the goal is to start chest compressions immediately, right? You may think, oh, do I check a pulse? You know what? We know that even in a medical situation, it's very hard to feel a pulse when somebody is unconscious. And so I like to remember, no, no, go, right? So by that, I mean, is the person conscious? No. Are they breathing? No. Then CPR, go, <laughs> right? So Cindy, what is effective CPR, right? And, and we define this both, you know, from the, the medical definition of, you know, how we perform it but really also what does it mean from the patient standpoint to give and receive effective CPR? Absolutely, Brad. So when doing chest compressions on a person, truly the rate and the depth become very important to ensure that we are circulating enough blood flow throughout the body to make sure that the organs such as the brain can continue to receive oxygen. When we do high quality CPR, we are basically taking over for the, man, for the heart and manually pumping the heart to ensure that it can circulate blood actively in the hopes that the heart is going to restart again. We know that immediate CPR can double or triple the chances of survival after a cardiac arrest. So if you see someone who goes into cardiac arrest, it is important to call 911 immediately yourself or have someone call 911 and for you or someone else to start hands-only CPR as soon as possible. The main concept of hands-only CPR is for you to push as hard as you can and as fast as you can right in the center of the chest. And typically the rate is about 100 to 120 per minute and to a depth of at least two inches for an average size adult while avoiding excessive chest compressions. There are songs to do CPR too, such as Staying Alive and Baby Shark that one can sing to, um, which will keep you on no, track. Not to Baby do, Shark, no. <laughs> which will keep you on track to Baby do chest compressions no. at that rate of 100 to 120 per minute, Brad. Those are super helpful to know that you can, like, those songs that everybody knows, it kind of gives you that beat to keep to it. I would ad advocate for not getting Baby Shark stuck in your head. I think we've... There is evidence-based medicine to suggest that baby shark is harmful to be stuck in your head. It is already stuck in my head right now. <laughs> I think I probably just interrupted you. But for a second, Cindy, you said hands-only CPR. And so for somebody who learned, I'm going to age myself here, learned in the 90s how to do CPR, we did um, hands and there were breaths involved. 
But that isn't um, the isn't advised anymore, is it? So the American Heart Association is recommending that for laypersons and bystanders, that really the most important thing to do is to do very good chest compressions and hands-only CPR and to allow for um, the healthcare professionals to take care of ventilations once they come into place. So when um, the emergency medical services team comes in, paramedics, physicians, nurses who are trained to do so, then they know exactly what to do um, in terms of how often to do chest compressions and how often to do ventilations for the patient. So what I think I hear you saying, the, the recommendations switch so that you can just focus on one thing and not trying to do do two, right? We there's better quality of compressions if you're just focusing on doing that one thing. Absolutely. And the recommendation is to push hard and fast right in the center of the chest. Got it. Okay. Singing Baby Shark. Yes. No. Baby <laughs> no. Shark. No, we don't. Do, no. Do, do. no. 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 <laughs> royalties. You have to pay royalties now. Oh, okay. Scratch that bell. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, I think that, no, but those things are, those things are really helpful. Like that, that, you know, makes it feel like, oh, Okay. Because you say 100 to 120 compressions per minute, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to count that. But if you're going to the beat of the song, that makes a lot of sense. Was there anything else um, that I, I I did feel like I interrupted you? I'm sorry about that, Cindy. Did you? Was there anything else that we needed to know real quick about how to do this high-quality CPR? Yeah, so um, for high-quality CPR, um, really it is important to minimize interruptions in between chest compressions. So continue chest compressions until someone arrives, and at the same time providing that compression with that adequate rate and depth that I just mentioned, so 100 to 120 per minute, so sing Baby Shark if that's helpful to you, and at least a depth of at least two inches. We want to make sure that we don't push, we push hard, but we don't push way too fast that it doesn't allow for the heart to fill with blood to be able to send that blood to the rest of the body. So that's why we focus between 100 to 120 per minute. Okay. So I know, Brad, when we, you mentioned it was two components to saving Damar Hamlin's life. So high quality CPR that was started immediately and then an AED. Um, and we have learned as employees how to, as employees of Cincinnati Children's, how to use them. We pass one walking in here. Um, so they're around, but I think that they're still kind of a little bit intimidating for some people. Will you tell us a bit about what they are and why they're important and what they do? So AEDs are automated external defibrillators. These are portable electronic devices that automatically diagnose or detect life-threatening cardiac arrhythmias. And an arrhythmia is disorganized electrical activity that does not allow the heart to pump blood to the important organs of the body, especially the brain. And so the main arrhythmias that the AED can detect are V-fib or ventricular fibrillation and pulseless ventricular tachycardia or VTAC. And the AED, when placed on the patient's torso, has sophisticated software in it that will see that rhythm and then advise delivery of defibrillation or an electrical shock through and across the patient's chest, the goal of which is to allow the heart to reestablish a normal rhythm that pumps blood to the rest of the body. So AEDs, interestingly, they were built in the 1960s, so they are older than everybody in this room. 
Um, they were later made available for public use in the 70s and 80s. So they've actually been around um, for quite a while. And really the main goal is that their instructions and their design is clear and easy to use. You can learn how to use them in a single session, you know, in the afternoon. Um, and people are taught to use them in many first aid, first responder, basic life support uh, classes where you would also learn CPR. It's an incredibly important part of doing it. And, you know, yes, it's hard to talk about how to actually use an AED in an audio format, but Cindy, give it your best shot. So AEDs can be found in many public spaces, including offices, schools, malls, grocery stores, and airports too. Um, the beauty about the AED is that it really just talks to you. So you turn on the AED and you try to follow the voice prompts, it would actually tell you what to do. So the most important thing is to continue to remember to do high quality CPR while you're getting the AED ready. So this requires someone else to be there to help you out. Um, and once you turn on the AED, um, it will tell you to go ahead and, and apply the pads on the patient's chest. So you should remove the shirt from the patient, make sure that the skin is dry, and the pads can be applied in two different places. You can either apply them in the upper right side of the chest and the other pad on the lower left side of the chest, or alternatively, you can also place one pad in the middle of the chest and the other pad on the back in between the shoulder blades. The pads then have this connector cable that can be plugged into the AED. The AED is going to analyze the heart's rhythm and will tell you whether shock is advised or not. If the AED tells you shock is advised, at that moment, you are going to stop CPR, make sure no one is touching the patient, say clear, and push shock button to deliver the shock to the patient. And right after the shock is delivered, it is very important for you to start chest compressions immediately again. Right. So that delivery of electricity doesn't automatically make the patient wake up and say, oh, what happened, right? It takes time for the coronary arteries, the blood vessels that supply blood to the heart to refill. And you'll still need to continue CPR even after delivering that electricity, um, even if the heart got back into a normal rhythm. So one of the, a couple of things that Cindy just explained to us that make me kind of as somebody who would be a bystander in a situation that somebody needed to act, make me feel a bit better is the fact that, A, it talks to you and tells you what to do, and B, the machine does the hard work of determining whether a shock is recommended, and if it isn't, you're not going to shock somebody who doesn't need it. I think that, like, that's kind of like an, ah, okay, I feel a bit better about this now. Um... And I think that, you know, I know you guys are going to tell us a little bit um, about some work that you're doing with teaching some kids these techniques. Um, but I do feel like even that makes it more doable for kids if they can listen to, to the machine. Um, so what is our next kind of bucket of type of intervention that can be done in a first aid perspective? I would say hemorrhage and bleeding control, you know, incredibly important. And I'm not talking about, you know, when one of my sons, you know, falls and scuffs their knee and it's the end of the world because it absolutely is the end of the world for seven minutes. Um, but there's a lot of situations where somebody can have uncontrolled bleeding, right? And I know in the back of your mind, you're thinking about a few of them. 
um, like unfortunate incidents like a penetrating injury from a knife or gunshot wound. But there's things that are far more common, right? You're cooking in the kitchen and there's a slip of the knife, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody's working in the garage or working around the car and you cut your hand or a dialysis catheter, you know, something that's used for somebody with chronic kidney failure, uh, bursts or ruptures. You can lose a lot of blood very quickly in any of those situations. Um, so it's important to recognize that bleeding happens quickly and it can continue in an uncontrolled fashion unless you do something. And the first step to stop bleeding is direct pressure. And this is scary, right? Even if it is your relative, you're putting your hands on blood. You're putting your hands on a wound, something that's going to possibly hurt this person. And so whether you grab a towel or a t-shirt or a napkin or just your bare hands, putting pressure over that site of bleeding is the first step in getting it to stop while calling for help. If pressure stops the hemorrhage, but then bleeding continues when you release pressure, continue holding pressure, right? You can hold pressure until EMS gets there if need be. Um, and again, it's going to be painful and it's going to be upsetting. So do your best to remain calm and to keep the person who's bleeding calm in the situation. Um, when direct pressure fails to control the bleeding, first aid providers can consider using a tourniquet. And I know we've all seen this in movies and TVs where like somebody's bleeding and then they like tear the sleeve off their shirt and they like tie a knot around the leg and then they go back to, I don't know, fighting aliens or whatever. That's like technically correct, but that's not how it's really done. Um, <laughs> and so manufactured tourniquets, you know, the ones that are actually placed in kits yep. and designed for the purpose, they are better than the sleeve of an action hero. Um, but the sleeve or belt could get the job done if you need to. Um, Cindy, how do you actually put a tourniquet on the right way? <laughs> Yeah, so um, a tourniquet is like a tight bracelet um, that helps control bleeding when pressure is simply not enough. Um, there are several different types of tourniquets out there, um, and the CAT tourniquet, which is also known as the Combat Application Tourniquet, is one of the most commonly used ones, especially in the military where it has saved countless of lives. Tourniquets can only be used in the arms or the legs, so it's not something that you wrap around your neck, Brad. There's okay. not a headband tourniquet? No, it doesn't go on the pelvis either. Oh, okay. Yeah, just the arms and the legs. Um, and you want to make sure that you slide that loop um, over the arm or the leg at least two inches above the wound. Mm -hmm. Above, And if you don't know what, you know, it's hard, you're not going to be measuring two inches specifically, but you can use your hand fist as a, as a distance. So at least two inches above the wound, or simply remember to go high and tight. It is important to know that tourniquets should not be placed over joints. So don't put them on the shoulder, don't put them on the elbow, don't put them on the wrist. We have very important nerves and vessels in there that we wanna make sure to protect. Um, so, um, and also like not on knees either. So you put that loop through, and then after that, you are gonna tighten the band and secure it onto itself with the Velcro. The cat tourniquet then has this windlass rod, and this rod, you are gonna start turning it. And you are gonna turn it until it's tight, but don't turn more than three times because it can break. After you turn it, then you are going to rest that windlass, um, that windlass rod in, onto the windlass clip and secure it. And then use the strap to continue securing the cat tourniquet. We must leave the cat tourniquet on the patient until help arrives because Severe bleeding is kind of like if you had a broken garden hose 
we want to make sure that we're kinking that garden hose and kinking those blood vessels tight to prevent further blood loss. So I, this cat tourniquet sounds like it's kind of an ideal case scenario. I know that Brad said using the sleeve of a superhero's arm or of a superhero's shirt is maybe not the best case scenario. They are scenario. made with very special fabric. That stops bleeding immediately. Yes. <laughs> if we can find a superhero, we're set. Um, but in the instance of helping someone when we are not on a movie set, um, and we don't, like if somebody doesn't have an actual tourniquet that is made for these things, I'm assuming the placement is probably still going to be about the same. What else does somebody need to be thinking of? Like if they're in a situation, it's like, wow, I just have to make something now to help this person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a belt. Yeah. I, I think a, if you have a belt available, that's something that cinches and closes on its own. Um, and it can be easily placed around you know, the limb. They're generally pretty broad. I think that would be the first thing to go to. Um, if you don't have that. Then you know, blanket, yeah, rope. Yeah, blanket, rope, long strip of fabric a sheet. I've seen various things uh, used as tourniquets over the years. And as long as it is applied tightly and left in place, if it controls the bleeding, then it has done its job. It is a temporizing measure. Okay. And the way that you will know that it's tight enough is because the wound should stop bleeding um, mm -hmm. at least significantly. Um, and it should decrease the rate of how much it's bleeding. And then if you manage to apply a tourniquet and it stopped the bleeding that way, can the pressure that you've been holding on it then be released, or do you still need to keep pressure on it too? That is a lovely point. That, and Cindy mentioned it, you may not completely stop the bleeding with the tourniquet. And so if there's a little bit of an ooze or ongoing bleeding, sometimes the combination of direct pressure over the wound itself and the tourniquet are necessary to control bleeding. And it is important to also know that it is going to hurt. Um, this is the unfortunate aspect of applying pressure to a wound or placing a tourniquet but it is life-saving, so it is ma making sure that you tell the person in front of you that you are doing this for their best interest as you're calling 911. And so I think that brings me to a question. I'm really curious to hear a bit about the work that you're doing to teach kids some of these first aid techniques. Will you tell us a bit about that work and what the kids think of what you're teaching them? Yeah, absolutely. So we are so excited to be working together um, to teach first aid skills to children in our community here in Cincinnati. We recently visited Bridgetown Middle School, um, which is where brass kids go to school. And we taught over 300 middle school students about bleeding control, how to apply a cat tourniquet on mannequins. And we had them actually practice it on the mannequins to see whether they were actually able to do so, understand where to put the, where to put the tourniquet on, and whether they were actually able to tighten it tight enough um, on the mannequin. And we actually also showed them how to do CPR on mannequins. We had a first aid kit building station as well, and one of our amazing firefighters came and told him all about his career and what he does out there, which I think inspired many children <laughs> to want to go um, and become a paramedic someday too. Um, this is um, a collaborative effort between both University of Cincinnati and Cincinnati Children's, the emergency medicine and trauma teams. And we are very fortunate that we had many physicians, nurse educators, paramedics, and child life specialists with us to make that a successful event. 
Our plan is to continue teaching this to kids around the Cincinnati area. One of our research questions which inspired this effort is to determine how early a child can learn about bleeding control and how to use a tourniquet correctly. Currently, we don't know at what age a child can, under, can cognitively understand how to use a tourniquet or at what age can they physically be able to tighten a tourniquet because it actually does take quite some force to be able to mm-hmm. maneuver through it and it takes several steps to understand where to put it and how to tighten it correctly. We know for sure that the American Heart Association mentions that children as young as nine years old can learn and retain CPR skills. And we see children as multipliers. And what that means, Brad, is that they can go home to you and tell all the social circle and their family um, all about what they have learned about first aid, which really helps increase our efforts to empower bystanders to help the ill and the injured until help arrives. So similarly to CPR, which CPR is now required um, in 34 states as a high school graduation requirement, we hope to provide guidance to schools as to when we should start teaching bleeding control skills to children. So I'm really curious, um, the cat tourniquet, is that something that somebody can just buy one to have available if they needed it? Absolutely, I carry one in my car. So a cat tourniquet um, can be bought on Amazon for about $30, 30 to $40. Um, I would definitely recommend people to learn how to use a tourniquet first, um, and that way they can do it through taking some bleeding control training courses through like Stop the Bleed, for example. And yes, um, you, can ha- you can definitely get a tourniquet online. You can also, um, so bleeding control training kits are actually available at different public settings as well. And there's a lot of encouragement to make sure that we have these kits available in public spaces, such as airports, schools. Actually, the middle school that we went to, they have a bleeding control kit in every single classroom in case an emergency were to happen. And that kit contains gloves, gauze to apply pressure, a scissor to cut the clothing so that you can find the wound, and it also contains a tourniquet. Because I know when my kids learn something really important like that at school, the first thing they do is come home and they're like, Mom, we have to, like, I have to show you what I learned. And it's really important that we have a tourniquet. So, but I hear you, it's the training that needs to come along with it as well. Um, But it's good to know that they're accessible and not particularly expensive. um, And maybe just having one is a good idea. Um, So... As we're talking about first aid, I know that there are people who can be afraid to act in an emergency. Either they think they'll make the situation worse or they will be accountable for what happens next if they accidentally, you know, if the person doesn't make it, that they could be, um, you know, it could be seen as it was their, their fault that the person died. How do you respond, Brad, if you have a conversation with someone who has this concern about offering first aid? I mean, even in our clinical environment where we see very ill and very injured children, it's normal to get that adrenaline rush, right? Um, This is tense and scary. It was unanticipated. And I, I mean, it's honestly absolutely normal, you know, to be nervous, right? Whether you took a CPR class three years ago and you've never actually done it on a real person, um, or you 
you know, just heard about it on a podcast or saw it on TV, um, don't worry that you don't have all of the right training or all of the right experience or that you might not be successful. Any effort to resuscitate somebody, to help somebody should just be started as soon as possible, right? So you don't have to be perfect. You just have to do your best and call for additional help like emergency services as fast as possible. And, you know, you mentioned it. I, I think people worry that, you know, if the patient doesn't have a good outcome, if they don't make it, that they could get into legal trouble. All 50 states and the District of Columbia have the so-called Good Samaritan laws. And though they're different in each state, you know, I think the common theme is that there's legal protection to people who give reasonable assistance to someone who is ill or injured or in danger or incapacitated. Right? These laws are intended to reduce suffering by empowering bystanders to act, to give help as soon as possible. So in short, you won't be liable if you start bystander CPR and, and someone doesn't survive. You know, I think, you know, in an optimistic sense, you know, we have surveyed the public and asked them about their willingness to act in certain situations. And so, you know, in terms of bleeding control, you know, we talked about hemorrhage a few moments ago. Um, almost everybody, 98% in one large survey said that, yes, they would help bleeding control in a family member. 92% said that they would do it in somebody involved in a car crash. And 75% said that they would help in a mass shooting scenario if it was safe to do so. So um, the people are willing to help. And you just got to get in there and do your best and know that your act to help somebody is a gift to them and it can make all the difference and that the law will support you regardless of the outcome. So my hope is that through this episode, we're going to inspire some people to say, I really want to learn this, or wow, it's been 25 years since I learned some of these first aid techniques. Maybe it's time for a refresher. Um, what organizations are kind of the most trusted for teaching first aid if somebody wants to learn? Fortunately, we're in a good place here in the States. There are a lot of organizations that advocate for and provide education on CPR, first aid, and, and bystander rescue. Um, a lot of people will first think of the American Heart Association. Um, that's a national nonprofit organization that funds cardiovascular medical research. They educate people on healthy living. Uh, they promote appropriate care and heart attacks and strokes. They offer basic and advanced training, first aid, CPR, AED training. The American Red Cross is another nonprofit humanitarian organization. Um, they also provide disaster relief and emergency assistance. And they also do a lot of their own courses, such as first aid, CPR, AED, basic life support um, for healthcare providers and lay providers. Project Adam is an organization that supports an inexpensive way to disseminate national evidence-based CPR and AED use in schools, right? So you can teach school administration, staff, students and family members and get AEDs and other equipment into school settings. So we are one of many children's hospitals that partner with this organization. Projectadam.com is where you can find out more information about them. Yeah, and Stop the Bleed is also a campaign through the Department of Health Services that teaches bleeding control to bystanders. It is definitely supported by the American College of Surgeons given that to them uncontrollable bleeding is the single most preventable cause of death following a traumatic injury. And you can sign up for classes at stopthebleed.org as well. I think one thing that 
we often see in the emergency department are, you know, children that are, are sick, but okay, and scary events happen at home, you know, like difficulty breathing with croup or a child has a febrile seizure, you know, and they look better after the seizure is stopped. And I think in those situations, parents can often feel powerless. One of the main recommendations that I give to them is to go take a CPR class, right? And yes, and on one hand, it can be uncomfortable to think about using CPR on your own child. But, you know, I think fortunately that likelihood is incredibly low. But what if it's on somebody else, right? And I think taking that, that worry and that fear that you had and then redirecting it towards something that can benefit others in society is often a way to help deal with, you know, some of the, the stress of that moment of your child being sick. And I've had many parents say that, that it was a valuable experience. Well, I think as a parent, it's just when something is out of your control, learning something new to help you know what to do if it were to happen is taking back a little bit of that control and being a little prepared. It's important to be prepared. Um, and speaking of being prepared, schools, sports, organizations, you know, fields, gyms, there are AEDs available in all sorts of places. Are those AEDs that are there, are those intended to be used by the people who run those organizations? Or are they there for anyone to like grab it and use it if there's a need? Anyone can use an AED that is placed anywhere, right? And I'll be walking into a you know, gym or a sports facility and I'm scanning for the AED. My, my wife is like, are you looking for the ADs? Like, Maybe, <laughs> yeah. Well, so since I'm sure you have looked in so many nooks and crannies in this city, where do people typically put them? Like if somebody wants to do the same and, and identify where it is as they're walking in, where should they be looking? I mean, ideally, it's in a very visible and high traffic area, right? So near an elevator, right? Or at the concession stand, right? These would be places that are kind of centrally located or easy for everybody to find with clear signage and right out in the open. So knowing that many sports facilities have AEDs on hand um, is fantastic. But what if there was someone who just really wanted to know that they always had access to one? Is that something you can purchase? I know we talked about the, the tourniquet. Is an AED something you can buy on Amazon? You, well, not on Amazon. Okay. But you can get one, and they cost about $2,000. So okay. um, it is a sophisticated computer, mm-hmm. you know, basically. I think if you are on a PTA, right, or you run a small business, or you volunteer at your church, these are some examples of a place where getting an AED for that location would be a wonderful idea. And you don't just stick it up on the wall and be like, hey, guys, we got an AED, company memo, right? You got to train people on where it's at, how to use it, and what to do. And so Project Adam and school AEDs, they link those together, right? So it's not just acquiring the equipment, but it's also teaching people when and how to use it. And so I think, yes, you can go out and buy the latest and greatest AED, but you also know how to use it. And anybody in that environment has to know how to access it as well. And while we're talking about just kind of having on hand what you might need, um, I know, Cindy, you told us about the Stop the Bleed kits that have kind of the things that you need in them. 
Is that something that's available if a family wanted to to have one of those with them at all times? Absolutely. The Red Cross sells them for a hundred dollars, and like I said, it's a great um, kit for you to have at schools, large gathering events, and inside those kits there are gloves, gauzes, scissors, and they also have tourniquets as well that you can use for bleeding control. So would that kind of be like in supplement to a first aid kit that somebody might already have? It's like you have the basic first aid kit and then a, a bleeding kit too? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, I think anybody who you know is really thinking about ways to help keep them and their family members safe it's really accessible and yes, $100 isn't nothing, you know, but the, the cost can be meaningful. You know, if your uncle is a mechanic and works in the garage and repairs cars, these are risk, right? And I think having a fire extinguisher and a stop the bleed kit are really similar ideas. And they're really about something that you probably won't have to use, but it's a good idea to have around. And so while we're talking about being prepared for just a second, um, first aid kits kind of come in all shapes and sizes. And if somebody is looking at either buying supplies to create their own or buying a ready-made first aid kit, are there any items that they really should be looking to make sure that they have if they're going to go to that effort? You should not buy one that has baby shark on the cover. (laughs) (laughs) Best advice of the day. Yeah. yeah, but Cindy, what goes what goes into a good first aid kit? Yeah, typically gauze, band-aids. Um, there's also um, creams as well that you can use that are triple antibiotic cream as well. So those are typically very good to use. Ace bandages, curlets wraps as well. What else can you think of, Brad? An antiseptic solution like yeah. um, isopropyl alcohol, so something to, to clean a wound. I feel like I've needed scissors before. Scissors is a good thing to to have in there if you have one big enough for that. Yeah, Some not safety it. scissors with baby shark on them, but actual good scissors that can cut fabric. Okay. Um, excellent. So I think that you have both um, expertly answered all of my questions. Thank you. I would just, I, I love our final thoughts section here. And Cindy, maybe I'll start with you. What What would your kind of, closing advice be to families uh, that we reach today with uh, with this first aid information? Absolutely. Um, so I guess from the first aid standpoint, you know, it is so important for you to know about it and to empower yourself to be trained to be able to save a life if the time were to, to happen in front of you. So bleeding control, for example, I believe that it's a must-have skill for anyone and it can truly save a life. And it's similar to a broken pipe or a broken garden hose. And if the severe bleeding is not controlled immediately, that person can die or be significantly injured. And we know that accidents can happen anywhere to anyone, whether it's a family member, a friend, or a stranger. And I think that the, the sentence that really sticks to me is that just remember that you truly are to help until help arrives to you. Yeah. I mean, That's acting important. quickly saves lives, right? So bystander CPR with high-quality chest compressions and early application of the AED makes all the difference in reversing potentially fatal cardiac arrhythmias. Those rhythms are most often seen immediately after a person goes down. 
right? And so you have a limited window to intervene with defibrillation and other interventions. You know, calling 911 and getting emergency medical services to the scene as fast as possible is also critical. Uh, patients assisted as soon as possible have higher likelihoods of surviving. And I mean, anybody listening to this episode can provide first aid. I mean, we're going into like grade schools to see if kids can apply tourniquets. Like you all can do this, right? So find time to learn CPR, learn how to apply an AED, learn where they're at in the places that you frequent, um, advocate for them to be installed if they're not there, right? A little knowledge and training can save someone's life. And so, I mean, all that I ask is just go out there, learn and make a difference. Sounds like a fantastic way to wrap us up. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Cindy. Appreciate both of you being here today. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was recorded on January 31st, 2023. Young and Healthy Podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. This episode was produced by Bo McMillan, and our theme music is created by Stephen Grieco. Thanks for listening. <laughs>